Welcome to Practical Christian Living. God wanted Israel to meet the nations, but here they were taking advantage of Gentiles who wanted to love God and serve Him, taking advantage of Jews that were bringing their sacrifices to God, and Jesus was upset at that. One of the things that makes God upset is when someone takes advantage of someone's sincere desire to serve and worship God. We're in our series, Jesus Appointments, as we look at various encounters Jesus had with individuals and today with a group of people, a group that made Jesus angry. What makes God angry? Today on Practical Christian Living, we learn that answer by studying what made Jesus angry out of a passage out of John chapter 2. Here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. Today we're looking at the appointment that Jesus had with the money changers. The Bible says that no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son has revealed Him to us. I think that's John 1 of verse 18. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God has revealed Him to us. This tells us that we can see something about God. Romans 1 tells us that we can see the nature of God in creation, that we can see that He was the one who created it is powerful. The one that created it is good. We can, the one who created it has an eye for beauty. We can see certain things about God, but we can't learn a lot of specifics by looking at nature. We're also looking at a fallen world with the aspects of a fallen world, the problem with evil that is in the world. But apart from that, we can see attributes of God in creation. Also, Romans 1 tells us that God manifests inside of us that there is a God. We know that God exists because there's something in us that tells us that God exists, something that God has put inside of each one of us. But if we want to know what God is like, what does He like, what doesn't He like? What does He encourage, what does He discourage? What gives Him pleasure, what gives Him joy, what is He angry about, then we have to look at Jesus. For example, we saw that Jesus often said to people, He was delighted in people's faith. When people really trusted and believed in what he was doing and in him, he said, I have not seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. He said to a Roman centurion, he said to a Gentile woman, I haven't seen this kind of faith and blessed are you because of your faith. I think today when we trust and believe in him that God delights in that. I also love the joy that Jesus brings. I was reading John chapter two and the miracle at the wedding of Cana. Jesus didn't pray a prayer at that wedding, not that we know of, maybe he did, but we don't know that he did. He just showed up and was there in the joy of that wedding. And of course he created, he turned water into wine, which shows the creative power of Jesus. He is the creator of the universe. And the first miracle that he did was to create wine. And our God is a God that changes. If he changed water into wine, then he can change you from what you were into what you are now in Christ Jesus. And then we come to Jesus going to Passover and we begin to get revealed to us more about what God doesn't like. So it says in John 2:13, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went to Jerusalem. Jesus had begun his ministry in the Galilee. The Galilee is an out of the way place. It's not a place anyone would choose uh, deliberately to start a ministry that would be impactful. It is the backwaters of Israel. 
but he goes to Jerusalem on Passover. This is the most important day on the Hebrew calendar. It is a time of remembering when God delivered the children of Israel through Passover. The children of Israel were to take a lamb, smear its blood on the doorpost of their house, and the death angel would pass over their house and their firstborn would live because of the blood that passed over. And we know now that that is a picture of Jesus. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is our Passover lamb. So for him to go to Passover must have been something special for him. Knowing he's going to Passover now, the first year of his ministry, he's got two more years of going. He'll be crucified on Passover on the third or the day before, the preparation day, he'll be crucified on at Passover for our sins. He approaches I'm sure with this in his mind that he is the Passover lamb and he goes to Jerusalem. He makes that trip from the Galilee to Jerusalem. And for them, the pilgrimage to the temple, the pilgrimage to Jerusalem was something very powerful. You and I have pilgrimages to church as well. If you're watching online, you haven't had a very long pilgrimage. Maybe you went from your bedroom out to your living room. Maybe you went into the office where you can watch it. But we drive here and there's not much time to really get ready but in their day, when they were going for Passover, they traveled for sometimes days to be able to get there. Some people traveled from a long, long ways away, preparing their heart, getting ready to meet with God. And so Jesus went to Passover with his disciples and he was in Jerusalem. In verse 14, it says, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and money changers doing business. When Herod had rebuilt the temple, he had made a giant platform that you can go and still visit today. It's called the Temple Mount. The Dome of the Rock, that mosque is there on top of that Temple Mount, maybe where the temple was located at, maybe a little bit shifted a little bit over from where it was at. But around the edge was something called the Court of the Gentiles. The Greek word that the Bible uses for Gentiles is ethos, and really literally it means nations. Most often in the New Testament, the term ethos is translated nations more than it is translated Gentiles. Context certainly does have it mean a group of people that are not Jewish. In other places, it can simply mean the nations. So it was the court of the ethos. It was the court of the nations. It's where everyone, no matter what nationality you were, could go and gather together. The Jews were allowed in those areas and Gentiles were allowed in those areas. And it was all around the, the court where Jews could go. Then there was the court of the men. Then there was the place that the priest could go. And then there was the place, place that only the high priest could go. So it all narrowed down to a very specific spot. Well, in the court of the nations, Jesus found these people who were selling oxen, sheep, doves, and money changers. What was this about? Well, in order to pay your tithe, you couldn't pay it with any other money. The money of their day, the Roman money, Jesus said, show me some money. Whose face is on it? They said, well, Caesar. And Jesus said, well, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar and unto God the things that are God's. So because there is an image on it, and the Bible says thou shalt not make any image, they would not allow that money to be used inside of the temple. So you had to exchange it for temple money. And they were in control of that. And they were charging exorbitant rates. Josephus tells us this, that they were charging exorbitant rates, that the priesthood literally had become corrupt, 
They were not there because they were the descendants of Aaron anymore. They were there because they were placed in power by the Romans. And the Romans were placing someone who was in power who would do what they wanted them to do, someone who would work with the Romans. Therefore, we have Caiaphas and we have Annas. Annas was the high priest when Jesus would have been a child. Caiaphas, his son-in-law, is the high priest at this point. Annas is still alive and these shops belong to Annas. He is lining his own pockets with them. Uh, running a temple proved to be very lucrative. Uh, everybody had to bring a tithe, 10%. Imagine everybody in a nation bringing 10% to one place. And then on top of that, when they had to exchange the money, you charged more money. Now, how would you feel if you brought your tithe? You said, I want to give God 10% of what I make. Today, in our day, we get to choose what we give to him. But let's just say you say, I want to give 10%. And you came to the church and someone met you at the door and said, I know you want to give money today, but, but you can't give American dollars. We don't take American dollars here. Well, we only take Calvary bucks. That's it. <laughs> Some of you kids have Calvary bucks from our Sunday school, don't you? We only take Calvary bucks. But it's, we need 18% of your income in order for you to give 10. By the time it came to you giving your tithe, can you imagine how you would feel? Now, I made a joke about it, but we would feel like we were being ripped off. Instead of going to God with joy and saying, Lord, I want to give to you and what a pleasure it is to give to you, we would be upset about giving to God. And then on top of that, if you needed to buy an oxen, which would be very expensive, a sheep or a dove to be able to sacrifice, then you had to pay more for that. That price was hiked up as well. So you had to exchange your money into temple shekels, and then you had to go over and buy the animal, which is more expensive than an animal that you would get anywhere else, and they were really taking advantage of people. And Jesus became angry over this. It was a righteous anger, but he became angry. And it says, and when he had made a whip of cords, he goes off to the side, he finds some cords, I looked up the word, it just means some rope. So he makes this whip out of it and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers money and overturned the tables. In Mark, we're told that Jesus said two things to them. My father's house is to be a house of prayer to all the Gentiles or literally to all the nations. And then he had said to them, but you have made it a den of thieves. And one thing that we forget is how familiar the religious leaders were with the Old Testament. These guys memorized the Old Testament. I'm quite sure that Jesus had memorized it. In our day, we live in a time when we can search anything. Earlier this week, I wanted to see whether or not any of those references were in the Old Testament. So it took me about 15 minutes to find out that both of them came from the Old Testament. In the old, if you wanted to know that before, you would have had to have been familiar with it. I would have had to have been really familiar with Jeremiah chapter 7, where it says that there was a corrupt priesthood that had made the temple a den of thieves. Jesus made a direct reference to a corrupt priesthood when he said, you have turned it into a den of thieves from Jeremiah chapter 7. And then he quoted Isaiah 56, when he said, the father's house or the temple is to be a place for the nations. Again, that's the Hebrew word for nations. And Jesus uses the word, or at least the New Testament uses the word that Jesus used as ethos, as being Gentiles, a place for the nations to pray. God wanted Israel to meet the nations, but here they were taking advantage of Gentiles who wanted to love God and serve him, taking advantage of Jews that were bringing their sacrifices to God. And Jesus was upset at that. 
One of the things that makes God upset is when someone takes advantage of someone's sincere desire to serve and worship God. I believe that, well, when I was a teenager and in my, my early 20s, there were a lot of, of charlatans that were on the TV and the radio that were raising, they were on there just to raise money. They were doing what they were doing just to raise money. And I remember hearing Pastor Chuck say when I was first going through the Bible with him, I remember him saying, I wouldn't want to be one of these guys in the day of judgment. And I think that's really true. They had found ways to make money beyond anything that they had ever imagined. In 54 AD, a Roman leader marched on Jerusalem and stole the gold out of the temple. The gold would equal in today's value, as near as I can calculate it, to $3.5 billion. In today's money, it would have been $3.5 billion that they had in the temple. How much is enough that you would have to do these kind of things? And so Jesus drives them out and he flips over these tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. You are not to take advantage of people. Church today is not to be a place of merchandise. It's a place for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a place to honestly take care of those that are doing the work. Paul said in Galatians that the worker is worthy of his hire and don't muzzle the ox while he's treading the mill. Take care of those that are in ministry. And I would add even take care of those who are in ministry generously. Allow them to be able to be generous. Be generous to those that are in ministry so that they can be generous to those that are around them as well. It needs to be a sign that a pastor is generous, right? A pastor should be generous so that people can see his generosity. And if you don't pay him enough, then he's not able to be generous. I've seen this on many occasions where people feel like they need to take a vow of poverty for the pastor. If you want to take a vow of poverty, you take a vow of poverty. But pay the, the pastor what he's worth. There are many pastors that are just barely scraping by, not because the churches can't afford to pay him more, but because they somehow think it makes them spiritual to be able to do that or makes him more spiritual to be able to do that. The more that you are allowed to bless him. Now, you can obviously go way overboard, right? It can be way overboard and there are examples of that. But the problem really isn't on the overboard side. That happens, but much more rarely than, than not being paid enough. If you let, allow them to be generous, then they can be generous, but not merchandising, not making merchandise of the people, just being honest. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. They'd not seen anything like this from Jesus. They saw him compassionate with sinners, people that had been under the oppression of sin. Jesus had been compassionate towards them. He had already had some interaction with scribes and Pharisees in the Galilee. But now to see Jesus flipping these tables over? So the Jews answered him and said, what sign do you do since you do these things? Or what, what are you going to show us that you have the authority to be able to do these things? They saw Jesus turn them over and he turned them over with authority. He is now, as he's going to say here, the temple of the Holy Spirit. His body is the temple. By the way, our bodies are now the temple. And as Jesus cleansed this temple, went in and cleansed that temple, I wonder if Jesus ever wants to come into our life and flip over some tables. If he might not see something that he doesn't like and he wants to take care of. Jesus said to them, give us a sign that you have the authority to do this. And Jesus said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up. He was speaking, of course, of him being God and that body that he had made as being the temple. They would use this at his trial 
saying that he said he would destroy the temple of Herod and rebuild it in three days. First of all, that's ridiculous. The temple of Herod was, was incredible. The size of the, the bricks that were used, the size of the structure itself, what it would take to destroy it, what it would take to rebuild it, certainly couldn't be rebuilt in three days. He obviously is talking about something different. There's a rule in Bible study that if it can be taken literally, then take it literally. As much as we can take things literally, we should take them literally. That keeps us from taking too much liberty with texts, making it say something else. But if it obviously cannot be taken literally, then you've got to find out what it means. So if he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up, you've got to know that he's talking about something different, that this is an analogy. And of course, he's talking about his body being raised from the dead three days later. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will rise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said to them, and they believed scripture and the words which Jesus said. So later on, they remembered that Jesus had said this when he rose from the dead. Now, there are three different kinds of anger. I just want to talk application a little bit now because we see Jesus getting angry. We see him going into the temple. He sees something he doesn't like. He goes off to the side. He makes this whip out of cords. He comes back over. He chases out the oxen, the sheep, the doves. He chases out those who are selling. He grabs a hold of tables and he flips tables over. And in our minds, it can look like a riot. It can look like, wow, he just kind of, he's gotten angry and he's in and he's just tearing things and he's flipping them over. And indeed he did. There's three kinds of anger. Two of these, it was not. The other one, it was. First of all, there is an outburst of wrath. And we all have experienced that. We have all had an outburst of wrath in our lives. For you kids who are here, it's a temper tantrum. That's what an outburst of wrath is. It just looks different on an adult than it looks on a child. We've all experienced people having temper tantrums in their car that we call road rage. <laughs> Praise God, I haven't had anything like that happen in a while. I had kind of turned on my turn signal quickly and pulled over into the lane in front of me because I knew if I turned on my turn signal, the guy was going to speed up. And he just came unglued. He comes up beside me. He's red-faced. He's yelling. He's telling me, I got kids in the car. And I, and I want to go, then why are you yelling at me? You know, if you have kids in the car. And uh, it just is like out of control. That is an outburst of wrath. We've seen people do it. And sometimes we've done it, right? We've been the one who's had that outburst of wrath and hopefully, like me, you are convicted when that happens to you. You certainly don't want to be filmed while that's happening. I think of an event that, that happened, right? The lady in the park, when she was being addressed about her dog being on the leash and she's being filmed and she has this, that, that is an outburst of wrath. The Bible says, put away anger, rage, and malice. Rage, of course, we know what that is. You're angry, and so you rage. Malice is when you want to hurt somebody. That's what we're supposed to put away. We are never supposed to get angry where we want to hurt someone and where we have rage. The Bible says, be slow to anger. The Bible tells us that we are to not be provoked, to not be easily provoked, that that's what love is. When we're walking in love, we're not easily provoked. And sometimes the problem with our anger is that we are easily provoked. And so we just go over the top. 
and that should never be in the life of a Christian. If you're struggling with that, that's something you have to struggle with. It's something that you've got to get rid of. It's something that you want to fight against because it is not Christ-like and it is something that doesn't please God. And the Old Testament says it is a fool who has an outburst of wrath. And a wise person brings peace and calm, but a fool vents his wrath. And so we don't want to be foolish. It is foolish always for us in our home, with our children, with our spouses. It is always foolish for us to vent our wrath. I've said this before, but I'm so thankful for James Dobson's book, The Strong-Willed Child, that I read after my daughter was born about how to discipline properly and never discipline out of anger, he said. Put a child in a room, uh, kind of time out. I don't know if it was called time out back in those days. Put a child in a room and go outside and calm down before you discipline that child. And that was so good for me to learn and read because that's not the way that my dad parented. My dad parented, me and my sister would be fighting. He'd be reading his paper. He'd be, we'd be fighting. He'd be reading his paper. He'd tell us to settle down. He'd be reading his paper. And then he would go like this. By golly, that is it. Bang. And we knew. By golly, that was it. He was a, he's a man of his word. When he was pushed to that limit, that's where he went. But that was an outburst of wrath. My dad had him often. I, I learned from that. And it's something that I had to struggle with as a young man that I would not be that person that would fly off the handle. That when I would become angry, that I wouldn't let it turn into rage and malice. That's not what Jesus was doing. Jesus did not have an outburst of wrath. He didn't walk in and see this happening and then go out of control because Jesus is wise. He's the wise counselor. He would not have an outburst of wrath. The second kind of anger is repressed anger. That's when something happens and it makes you angry. Someone says something to you. Maybe a wife or a husband who's learned how to push each other's buttons. We become good at that after a few years. We know the exact thing to say, and there's some malice to it too. It might not be a, a rage, that kind of rage malice, but you say something because you know it gets to them. And when that happens to you, you don't say anything. You just kind of repress it inside. The Bible says that that leads to a root of bitterness that defiles many you don't want to be that person that represses rage. And if I can take the role of a marriage counselor right now, outbursts of wrath are horrible for marriages, but so is repressed anger, not dealing with it. If somebody needs to talk something out, if your spouse, then, then talk it out. Talk it out until they're done. Listen to what they have to say. Be sure that you give them that opportunity. It's okay to say, I don't want to talk about this right now because feelings may be too fresh and you feel like I'm going to have an outburst of wrath. But don't put it off forever. Don't put it off for a, even a day. Take time to settle down and then talk to someone and listen to what they have to say. It's amazing to me how someone can be upset about something. Someone's upset about something that happened. Maybe a wife feels like she was treated in a kind of a derogatory way and she's hurt by that. And so she tells her husband and her husband says, I didn't, that's not what I was doing. I wasn't thinking that at all. I was just saying this. When you can say to your wife, I'm sorry that I made you feel that way. I can see how it would make you feel that way. I'm sorry. But if you just kind of stick to your guns, and sometimes that's pride, right? You stick to your guns. No, I didn't mean it that way. And I'm not going to give in. When instead you can say, well, I don't want to make you feel that way. Her feelings are real, whether you meant it or not. 
You could flip it around too. A wife can say something to you. She may not want to make you feel that way, but you feel that way and it's real. And so I've learned to be very open and we've gotten it out in the open and we've talked about it. We've been able to communicate those things. And I just want to encourage you to communicate that way. Don't let there be something that has sat untalked about for years. It will cause a root of bitterness and it will defile many. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on KGUN 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.